You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football editor of Chronicle Live, and we've reached a bittersweet chapter in the 140-year story of Newcastle United. Last week we covered the arrival of Kevin Keegan as manager, promotion to the Premier League and the birth of the entertainers. This week focuses on the two seasons between 1995 and 1997, best remembered for amazing football, stunning kits, of which I'm wearing one to record this episode, and incredible signings. And one of those incredible signings is with us today as our special guest. Paul and I are very excited to be joined by Newcastle United's legendary defender, Warren Barton. Warren, a warm welcome to this chapter of our history series. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Just for the occasion as well, my friend. Looking smart. It's one of the best, isn't it? I'm wearing the, the 1995 Awake shirt for people listening. Um, people watching on YouTube will be able to, to see this. But yeah, one of the, the all-time great Newcastle kits, don't you think? Yeah, you, you don't look as good as David Ginola, but you're not, you're not far off. You're not far off. Well, no, not, not, not quite. Not quite. Okay. The right. name's on the back, trust me. Nice. Good man. Good man. <laughs> Warren, um, it's a tradition on the podcast that when we have ex-players on, I try, I try and kick off by reading an extract from Paul's book, The Ultimate Who's Who, which profiles every single player to have ever played for Newcastle United. So here's what your extract in, in this tomb of, of history says. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm worried now. Warren Dean Barton became Newcastle United's most expensive purchase and Britain's costliest defender when he moved to Tyneside as a 26-year-old. Although the club smashed the record only two days later, in a week of spectacular acquisitions, Barton was rejected by former Magpie favourite Frank Clark when manager at Orient. Then he caught the eye when turning out for Football League newcomers Maidstone United. The Magpies, in fact, tried to sign him back in 1919, but wouldn't pay the fee of 300000 and he joined the Dons at Wimbledon instead. Blonde-haired and confident on the ball, Barton was a good all-round player, also able to perform in midfield. He also loved to attack in the Newcastle mould of the time, but could also defend with resolve. During his time in South London, the Cockney was picked by England at both B and full level, although Warren's full debut for his country lasted barely half an hour, the international fixture in Dublin during 1995 being abandoned due to a riot. Having impressed United's boss Kevin Keegan, he completed the move north after a persistent chase by the Black and Whites. During his rewarding stay on Tyneside, Warren took part in two FA Cup finals with the Magpies and finished twice as a runner-up in the Premier League. Skipper on occasion, he also appeared in the Champions League for Newcastle United. Does that all check out, Warren? I couldn't have wrote it any better. Couldn't have wrote it any better. <laughs> that was well done. But yeah, it was good, uh, good. Lo- lots of good memories. Lots of As soon as I start thinking about that, it, it's, it's smiling about the time because... Uh, you know, it was very, very exciting for me. So, yeah, very well wrote. Thank you. So, cast your mind back to the summer of 1995. As a fan, I remember it being fantastically exciting where we all thought that we had the, the last pieces in the puzzle to go on and, and properly challenge for the league. Yeah, I mean, it had been building up probably the, the beginning of the year. Uh, as the article rightly said, I was, you know, getting involved with the England squad when I was at uh, Wimbledon. Um, there was a lot of speculation whether it was Arsenal, Everton, Man City, Sheffield Wednesday and obviously Newcastle and Celtic. So there was a lot of build-up. And the same as Les Ferdinand. So when we was away with international duty, we'd both have a chat, you know, being at smaller clubs, if you like, and representing your country uh, was quite a bit, um, you know, 
unreal and surreal at the time. Um, and we'd say, well, where are you going? And you go in there and we'd have a chat. And obviously Barry Venison, uh, Rob Lee, um, Steve Howie was at the, the England get-together as well. And I just remember uh, speaking to Venice actually at a table and just saying, look, you know, I know you're being linked, but the club's going places, Kevin, the fans. And it was about two weeks later that Wimbledon played uh, a night game up at St. James's Park. And I remember doing a call down afterwards and, and saying to a good friend of mine at the time, you imagine playing in front of this lot every week, week in, week out, how exciting that would be. And lo and behold, you know, that summer it happened. Uh, I met Kevin Keegan in, in April. Um, he came down to London and just said, come and join a big club. Um, and everything fell into place. Uh, I was so excited to, to have that opportunity. Um, and then, as you said, the, the record for a defender, which was uh, very proud because, as you know, as you mentioned, Frank Clark, when I was a, a YTS at the time, and people that can remember that, um, Frank was at Leighton Orient and said, look, we, we can't take you on. You're, you're, you're too small um, and we're going to have to let you go. And I played non-league for 18 months and two and a half years later, I'm, I'm in the Premier League playing for my country. So that just shows you how things can turn around. Um, so it's exciting times uh, and something that, you know, you, you wish for as a player, you want to dream out and then to be part of Les Ferdinand, David Ginola, Shaka Hislop uh, and being part of that team that was already being assembled by Kevin Keegan uh, was fantastic and the, you know, the, the style of football was great but it was very very exciting summer very busy summer obviously uh, with with England being in the Umbro Cup and then getting transitioned to, to Newcastle but it was a, it was a dream move for, for all of us really I mean all of us have said the same thing that we was welcomed by the players welcomed by the fans and obviously having someone like Kevin Keegan Terry McDermott involved um, made it a joy to be around yeah and Paul coming to you Newcastle had the checkbook out in quite a serious way at this time didn't they they certainly did. Uh, the summer of 1995 saw the club as, as big spenders again, as the Magpies made a, made a real push to challenge Manchester United as the country's top club. Uh, to fill the Andy Cole gap in the number nine shirt, uh, in came England striker Les Ferdinand from QBR for a record £6 million fee. Uh, and he just became hugely popular at St James's Park. Also to arrive for, for equally uh, or, or big fees were, were a certain Warren Barton, as, as we've said, uh, and goalkeeper Shaka Hislop. Um, and then the arrival of French international David Ginola caught everyone's imagination on Tyneside and it showed that United could attract the very best players in world football. You know, Ginola was an immediate hit in a black and white shirt. David Batty arrived later in the season um, and he reinforced midfield. Uh, and so too did Colombian international Tino Espria, uh, who joined the growing international uh, setup at St James's Park. And that broke a record again at seven and a half million. So the club actually broke the record three times in the opening months of that season. And as a result, United had a strong and, and quite dazzling squad of players, really. Uh, the storm to the top of the Premier League, winning nine of the opening 10 matches. Everyone took notice as Keegan's entertainers uh, made a big impact. Yeah, they certainly did. And obviously, you, you were one of a number of new signings, Warren. Sometimes it can take a bit of time for that many new faces to bed in, but this team really hit the ground running, didn't they? Yeah, and I think a lot of that was down to Kevin looking at and identifying players that could fit in with the players that already had the style of football that he wanted. You know, John Beresford on one side, so getting another fullback that liked to get forward um, with, with myself uh, to, to go forward and, and obviously try supply some crosses for people. Uh, you had Keith Gillespie, obviously a winger on one side, very direct, very pacey. 
on the other side a compliment of David Ginola with some of the things I'd never seen before. You know, I, I remember seeing him play at Hearts, controlling the ball 50, 70 yards out of the air, on his chest, turn left, right, off he went again. And he was big, he was strong, but he was electric quick as well and could whip a ball in. And then ultimately, you know, Les Ferdinand, totally different to Andy, Andy Cole. Andy Cole was more of a goal scorer, but Les had that presence, had that pace, had that size, aerial it was as good as anything there was in the game at the time. And you put that in with Peter Beardsley. You pull that in with Rob Lee, Lee Clark, Steve Howie, Darren Peacock, Philip Albert. Uh, and then you had two outstanding goalkeepers with Pavel Cernicek and, and, and Shaka. So it really had the, the, the nucleus. And a big part of how we felt comfortable was the players already at the club. The likes of Steve Watson, um, you know, Robbie Elliott, Lee Clark. When we arrived, they'd come and say, come and, have, come and have some lunch, go out for a drink here and there, very uh, conservatively, yeah, go and have a drink with the boys and just made us feel welcome. And that togetherness and that spirit uh, happened quite quickly. Myself coming from a club, uh, again, a smaller club like the Crazy Gang, we was a lot about team spirit. QPR with what they had achieved in, the, in that time with Jerry Francis, that team spirit, that bond. Les was a, an open book and, you know, we caught his nickname was Celez at the end because he was such a, a gentleman and a, a nice fella. And David coming to his shaka. So it was that team spirit and that togetherness. And the way what was refreshing, what I heard today with a new manager, and I know we're going to touch on that, Kevin had us training the way we played. Pass, move. If someone was in a uh, position, they moved, you took their spot. Uh, and it was very much works and in, sim uh, in, a, in a system that complemented each of the players. You know, we, the goal from Philip Albert against Manchester United, that delightful chip. He wanted his centre-halves half, centre to come forward with the ball. If they did, someone would cover him and so on and so on. So, But a lot of it was down to, you know, it was so iconic at the time. The, the, the kits, the granddad collars, the black and whites, the Newcastle Brownell. The city was vibrant. The city was... Uh, growing, it was getting stronger. As you rightly said, we broke the transfer three times in, in a matter of months. And Tino coming into it, Colombian, loved it straight away. David Batty, you know what you're getting with David. He's, you know, a hard, wonderful player, uh, experienced player, and Tino mixed in. And we had wonderful team spirit and togetherness. And the thing that for Kevin, and I think we're touching it later on, in the end of towards the season, is trying to fit all them players into a system going forward. And that's maybe where we lost a little bit of momentum. But at the beginning, it, it was just wonderful to be around. As I said, not only in the team, in the changing room, but outside in the city, outside in the region. You know, Sunderland and Middlesbrough was was in there as well. And, you know, that's what we wanted. We wanted to beat them. We wanted to have that rivalry. And uh, as I said, it was great going to them stadiums and beating them and turning them over. Yeah, happy memories. I'm beaming listening to you recall this, this era. And Paul, Christmas 1995. It was probably the happiest of my life. It snowed on Christmas Eve. Newcastle were dominating English football. Everything looked extremely good, didn't it? It was certainly good, that's for, that's for certain. And by December, uh, United were 10 points ahead in, in the title race, and, and that would increase. And, and you know, Manchester United were, were behind us. Newcastle looked to cert to win the trophy uh, for the first time since 1927, all of uh, 69 long, long years ago. Captain Peter Beardsley was on top form, Les Ferdinand on fire, uh, and he scored 29 goals that season. Uh, Rob Lee was magnificent in midfield with uh, Janula and Gillespie at times unplayable down the flanks. You know, it was just a magic time. Yeah, it was. And uh, I gave you your player focus at the start of the show, Warren. There's there's two other names that we really do need to speak about. You've mentioned them already from this period, Les Ferdinand and David Janola. Paul, can you give us the official rundown on, on those two legends of Newcastle United, please? 
Uh, well, there were two top-class players, uh, uh, without doubt. And, and unfortunately, both of them only had short spells at St James's Park, and they should have really been there much, much longer. Les Ferdinand, a worthy owner of the number nine shirt, without doubt. He replaced Andy Cole. All Newcastle fans knew of the England international, you know, alongside Alan Shearer and, and Andy Cole. He was one of the best strikers in the business uh, at that time. Uh, tall and powerful. He quickly made an impact uh, as that 95-96 season started. In fact, at the end of the season, he lifted the PFA Player of the Season award. And, and uh, that is, is the ultimate uh, award for any player. Then the following year, he teamed up with Shearer when he arrived and, and the pair of them uh, were, were unmatched in the Premier League. However, he was controversially allowed to leave just as Alan Shearer was badly injured uh, at the beginning of the following season. You know, why or why Newcastle, you know, let him go and, and wanted to break up the best partnership in the country is still a perplexing question even now. You know, he joined David Janula at, at Tottenham. His record, 84 appearances, 50 goals, a 60% strike rate at the very top level of football, and, and you can't get better than that. And David Ginola, well, he was my sort of favourite player at that time, to be honest. We never quite had seen anything like David Ginola at St James's Park in a black and white shirt up to then. You know, he added, Kevin Keegan added a splash of French magic uh, to the side when he arrived from PSG. He was experienced in the Champions League and for France. He was stylish, flamboyant, had a match-winning ability on the wing or in midfield. Tall and elegant on the ball, he glided, just glided past opponents and could whip in a terrific cross, uh, which Les Ferdinand thrived on, really. You know, it was a great pity he never saw eye-to-eye -eye with Kenny Daglish, who, re who replaced Kevin Keegan eventually, and, and the manager you know, dismantled those entertainers. You, you, he went to Tottenham and uh, it was proved that that was a huge mistake as, as he was a huge uh, success at Tottenham. He was PFA Player of the Year and Footballer of the Year in 1999 and you know, he should have still been playing for Newcastle United. His record, 76 appearances and seven goals. And it should have been 276 games, really. Yeah, pair of legends. You, you, miss, you miss one point with David. He was, yep. a, re he was a really good-looking fella. <laughs> yeah, he certainly was. Les wasn't bad either. Les is not a bad looking fella. But David, a, a quick story. When me and Les was having breakfast at the Gosford Park and we just signed and, and KK had asked me to, to bring the lads down to training. Um, I think he knew straight away I was going to be like the entertainment manager and, uh, you know, club captain off the field. So he, he said to me, do me a favour, bring, bring David down. So we knew of David and we'd seen David. So me and Les were having breakfast and, you know, the, the people are saying, can you sign this, Les? And all of a sudden, just caught my eye, a guy in a white linen shirt, glasses on, beads on, shirt undone a little bit to his navel or to his chest. And Les was like, you know, who's that? I went, I think that's David. I think that's David. So we, we called him David. We called him Dave. He hated it, but he wanted to be called David. But we called him <laughs> Dave. We called him Dave. And he come walking over and, and me and Les was like, wow, <laughs> he's a good looking fella. Uh, and he come down and the very stylish French how are you nice to meet you sat down chatting um, but yeah just a wonderful wonderful player and a, and a really good man you know and um, it was a shame that you, you're right he didn't stay for much longer and Les um, you know Les was with me in Bali when he got told by uh, the, the club at the time or by Kenny that he wasn't going to play regular all the time and then lo and behold Alan dislocates his ankle and 
John Dale Thomason had just come to the club and, and found it very, very difficult with the expectation. And, and Les had been told only weeks before that you wasn't going to play. And Les said to me, what, what do I do? I said, Les, you're going to play every week. <laughs> Regardless of what they say, you're going to play every week. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, the, the deal was already done and, and he left. But um, two great people, two really good people off the field as well, not just on the field, but off the field as well. Definitely, definitely. Great story there about David. Love it. No, Dave. Um, Dave, he hated Dave. it. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, into, into 1996 then, uh, Alex Ferguson's pesky Red Devils. They just kept winning games 1-0, it seemed. All these late winners and that 10-point gap, it just kept closing, didn't it? Well, it did. But before that, United fans were, were, were buoyant and, and we really believed that this was going to be you know, the year. And the football was just scintillating as a bonus. It just couldn't get any better at that point. The Magpies held the top position from day one, but during the spring, Manchester United eventually, as you say, caught started caught started to catch uh, Newcastle up. Uh, they won one 0 at St James's Park, and the pressure was really on. You know, the Reds eventually took over at the top as Newcastle lost two 0 in a visit to the capital to face Arsenal. Uh, Keegan's men had, had had hit a slump in form. Then came what has been labelled as the Premier League's finest ever match, uh, Liverpool v Newcastle at Anfield on the 3rd of April. Now, many recognise that famous 4-3 defeat at Anfield after being 3-1 ahead as the key match in United's title downfall. To me, it, it wasn't. Uh, it, yes, it was a setback, of course, uh, losing three points. But Newcastle actually recovered from that uh, and, and uh, recorded four victories out of five games played. Yeah. Warren, looking back at the stats, you've been ever-present up until the Anfield game in April, but it looks like you didn't make the squad for the famous 4-3. Can you remind us why? Yeah, I'd had a little bit of a knock uh, in the Arsenal game. and uh, To be honest with you, I didn't play very well at all. Um, and I'd been carrying a little bit of a knock and, and Kevin uh, made the decision that he was going to start changing, and, and rightly so, because I wasn't playing well. Uh, and he felt that it was time and just had a, a, a little knock. So I was in the squad, and, but didn't make the, the A-team. But I do agree with what you said earlier. The, the Manchester United game for us, because we we played so well and we'd been looking forward to it. We'd already gone to Old Trafford uh, a little bit beforehand in the winter and lost 2-0 there uh, and didn't play particularly well. So he was very adamant to start the game well. And if it wasn't for Peter Smichael that was making save after save and Leeds had hit the crossbar, hit the post... And some of the football. So we come in at half time, uh, very frustrated more than anything that we hadn't put the ball in the back of the net. And no, no point of the thing because Smiker was was unbelievable. And hindsight's a great thing in life, but unfortunately, all of us apart from one, Peter, um, had never won a title. So Kevin had said, "Let's just go out again and show them how good we really are." I think if we'd sat back and said, "You know what? We ain't losing this game." You know, with this, this is a game we can't not can't afford to lose, but we ain't losing it psychologically, morale wise, and also pride wise. They're not coming to our stadium and beating us, not particularly how well we played in the first 45 minutes. We didn't, we went out again and started the game really well, going forward, taking chances, and we got caught on the sucker punch with Eric Cantona punching the ball into the ground, going past Pavel Cernicek, uh, and it went in the back of the net. So, that for me was a big turning point because I think it's put a seed of doubt no I don't think I know it put a seed of doubt in our mind uh, that they've beaten us twice uh, and then going to Anfield uh, and being in such a game that it turned out to be arguably the best game in the Premier League's history the end-to-end -end, the style of football the, the flowing style that we had in that famous 
uh, image of Kevin Keegan slumped over the boards as Stan Collimore tucks the ball in at the far post uh, and ultimately wins the game. So, yeah, it was frustrating for me. Uh, Kevin has started to try and change things around. I mentioned about, you know, Keith had been left out in one of the games. Rob Lee had slid, uh, Peter Beers had slid over to the right-hand side. There was a little bit of tinkering that was being done. And we just lost momentum. And as you rightly said, you know, Man United just kept on 1-0, 1-0, 1-0, 1-0. And just kept on training. And because of our label as the entertainers, we was always Sunday or Monday night game. You know, we was, you know, we was box office. So people wanted to see us. They wanted to see the St. James's Park with the atmosphere with the fans. You wanted to see the seven or 8,000 Geordies that was travelling away at uh, Ewood Park or going to the city ground when it was a night game to go and see it. So... They'd always played the day before on a Saturday, 1-1-0. Now it's all eyes on us. And then, you know, it's not an excuse. It's just, it's just a fact. And we just couldn't handle that. And we let everybody down. We, You know, we we sat at the end of it. And, you know, ultimately they, they went and won it. We give them credit and, you know, give them the, the praise that they deserve. But ultimately it was down to us and, and we failed. And there's not a day go by, not a moment go by that we don't think about that. Not, not for us. And I've spoken to a lot of the players. It's not for us. It was for the club. It was for the city and for the people. You know, when we see Blackburn won the Premier League with all, and Liverpool now have won it, Newcastle United would have been on it. And who knows what might have done after that? You know, Les Ugly probably wouldn't have left. David wouldn't have left. KK wouldn't have walked out at the turn of the year, the following season. So there's a lot of ifs and buts. Um, but, you know, that's what we have to, you know, that's what we have to die with. But we're, we're proud of what we've done. But we feel like we let people down. Well, I do. I feel like that we let the, the, the people down because we, we had it. Um, and there's not a moment goes by that we don't regret that. Yeah, so many sliding doors moments, as you say. The, just thinking back to the 4-3, the, the Collymore goal, Collymore sliding in. That's it right back, Warren. If you were there, maybe we could have <laughs> Yeah, have yeah, it. yeah. No, I, I, you know, Watto was a, a good player. But yeah, I could have maybe been there and kicked Stan a little bit earlier. So he probably <laughs> wouldn't have got to the end of it. But yeah, it's just such, so many twists to 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 our history, to, to that time, you know, and you can feel it. And even now I can taste it. I can sense and every minute of, of that game, um, and, you know, Les getting the goal, Tino getting through, you know, it, it was just a, a wonderful game. And you're proud to be involved, but there's always that bitter, sweet taste that, if only, um, but yeah, I would have kicked Stan right under the air. He wouldn't have. He would have seen me in the corner of his eye. So it's one. Of, it's one of those things. Colin Moore closing in. Barton with the tackle. Yeah, exactly. Throw. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, there's no avoiding it, Paul. Um, the magical season that turned into a nightmare. Can you just remind us how it all concluded? We have to do this, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I, I reckon the crucial matches were the two away games at Blackburn and Nottingham Forest. Um, United were leading in both games, uh, but lost 2-1 at Ewood Park to a couple of uh, goals from Graham Fenton. And it had to be Graham Fenton because he was born and bred on Tyneside, of course. Um, and then drew 1-1 at Nottingham Forest. That's when Newcastle let the title slip away because we had a, a, a final home game at the very end of the season and that could have been crucial. Manchester United went on to take the trophy once more by four points. Uh, Newcastle were runners-up and went you know, ever so close. Uh, and, and they really should have lifted the Premier League crown that year. And uh, you know, unfortunately, it didn't, didn't, as Warren says, uh, but it was hugely enjoyable nevertheless. Absolutely, absolutely. And Paul, just staying with you, Newcastle couldn't even console themselves with a place in the Champions League, could they? 
Uh, no, they didn't get into the Champions League back then. Um, only the actual league champions uh, entered the Champions League. So United qualified for the UEFA Cup uh, once more as a consolation. Uh, supporters were devastated after a season of such uh, expectation. So was Keegan, of course, but he was determined to give it another another go in in uh, 1996-97. Uh, Newcastle had shown the football world that they were indeed a new force in the game. And the world record signing in the close season uh, of England's top centre forward was to reinforce that. Yeah, before we get to that, just one more on, on the 95-96 season. I want to see what you think about this, Warren. I just wanted to dispel, dispel a myth that Newcastle lost the league because they couldn't defend. I've been looking at the stats. They conceded just 37 goals that season. Only Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal and Villa conceded less in the campaign. And it remains the best defensive performance in the club's Premier League history. 26 seasons, that is the lowest they've ever conceded in a Premier League campaign. And also, going forward, Newcastle, you know, Liverpool scored four more goals than Newcastle that season. Man United hit seven more. So maybe Keegan's Newcastle was more balanced than we give them credit for. Yeah, I think it was. You know, I know Gary Neville had come out and said, well, we knew they'd score goals, but knew they couldn't defend. Well, we, we could defend. It was just crucial moments that we we let it slip, you know, and momentum is such a big thing and confidence is such a big thing at the time. Um, and Paul's rightly said, you know, going, you know, being ahead at Ewood Park and then conceding goals, it's just killer goals that, you know, big turning points in a season. And you're right, if we, if we tie the game against Liverpool 3-3 or we tie against Man United 0-0, there's all ifs and buts. So defensively, we did work on that. I remember you know, Mark Lawrenson was very much a, a big part on match of the day saying we couldn't defend. We asked him to come down. He couldn't put a session on because we could defend. We had some, some, some people on. He actually asked Arthur Cox out to put a session on to do it. So we did work on things like that. But because of our dominance and because of how, you know, defended, we, we defended on the front foot. We defended in their half. We, we put teams under pressure. You know, remember the, the games at home against like Man City, Coventry, Cuba, uh, Wimbledon. We'd won the games in the first 20 minutes. We was 2-3-0 up. We didn't have to defend. But I record, a, you know, we took pride on that. And as I mentioned before, earlier on, we had two outstanding goalkeepers uh, as well. So, yeah, a lot of it because of the entertainers. And I think because of the 4-3, people do point their finger at that. But, you know, we did take pride. Darren Peacock was a hell of a defender. Steve Howie uh, and Philip Albert. So we had people that could defend. Definitely, yeah. You can say you were part of the leanest defence in Newcastle's mm. Premier League history. Yeah. Paul... If fans thought that the jigsaw was complete in the summer of 1995, another huge piece of the puzzle arrived in the summer of 1996. Uh, yes, uh, you know that summer, you know the country was uh, captivated by Euro '96, of course, and uh, straight after that tournament, England's talisman Gosforth Bourne, Alan Shearer made a world record uh, move back home to join Keegan's bandwagon for a record, well, a world record, 15 million and a bit. Uh, pounds. It was sensational news. United beat Alex Ferguson to his signature, uh, with Alan desperately wanting to wear you know that traditional number nine shirt uh, for his hometown club. Warren, can you remember where you were when you heard that yeah, Alan would be joining? Yeah, yeah no, there'd been a, a little bit of talk about that, and great credit to the the ownership, Sir John Hall, um, you know, for that to have that disappointment the the few months before, then to rectify that. You, know, you go and get arguably the best striker in the world and best striker in Premier League history, in my opinion, Alan Shearer, to come. Obviously, I've been around Alan and played against him when uh, he was in the Premier League and been with him with England. Um, he was just a machine. You know, he, he worked so hard at his game. He was the first on the training field, last to leave, doing finishing. Uh, and we was getting ready for a trip to the Far East. We just finished in Thailand. 
Uh, and then we was going off to Japan and um, I was obviously rooming, well not obviously, but I was with Les Ferdinand and we was rooming together. And it was all spelling about that Alan was coming, you know, there'd obviously been sort before he's left and then, you know, it was being done. And Les said he's asked for the number nine. And I like, I left it a second. He went, it's no problem for me. The, the biggest, I tell you what, and you had Lee on there. You should have asked Lee this, Clark. Yeah. The biggest problem is that Les took the number 10 and Clarky was so pissed. <laughs> Clarky was pissed off. He, he was going, there was more tension about that than taking that Lee's number 10. Well, and he ended up number 20. And he was pissed off for a couple of days, uh, Lee. Um, but Les was like, you know what? It, it's Alan. It's Alan Shearer. Um, he, he knew exactly. And Les was had no problem at all. There was no grudge against him. And he knew it was going to benefit the club. And we he knew he was proud to wear that number nine shirt, Les. Uh, but he understood, you know, this is Alan Shearer coming back to Newcastle as a, as a player, wearing that number sign from War Jackie and, you know, Super Mac and the players that have had it. And it don't come any better than Alan Shearer wearing a number nine as a world record for uh, Newcastle United. So we was away, we was excited. And then he obviously got the flight and come over. I don't, think if my memory serves me he was actually involved in any of the games but he, he joined in in training he came out with us and then he got ready obviously for the start of the season uh, and then the, that's when the the excitement started the obviously 20 or thousand fans outside the stadium watching him uh, be involved as a, as a player uh, in the press conference so yeah it was a really exciting time and it made us say you know what we're ready to go again we was determined after what had happened as a group a lot of us was working out through the summer uh, we had short holidays together we, a lot of us was back early in the northeast getting runny going you know going in the gym going training together uh, you know there's eight or nine of us it was always together training uh, and then obviously alan to come in so we was even more determined and it was just a wonderful spectacle to see alan and uh, be part of us and for me it's a dream as a defender you're looking up front how can you go wrong? You've got Janola Gillespie and then you've got Big Al and Les. You know, they turn a bad ball into a good ball. And it was just, yeah. you know, the dream partnership. And Les had come out and said, which I think is a great line, you know, they'd look at each other before the kickoff. And there's only so many players could do this, you know, like Burkamp and Henri, Andy Cole and Dwight York, maybe, to look at each other and say, we're going to terrorise these lot today. We're, we're going to kill them. And, and know that you can do it. And know that you're going to do it. And they did it. And they hit the ground running. They complimented each other, um, and it was just a joy to be around because Alan was was fixed in. He was focused. He was, as I said, he's become a good friend of mine now. Uh, but he was, you know, he was a hell of a player and the best number nine to ever play in the Premier League. And probably, I know he's been War Jackie, and I wasn't around that time, but arguably the best number nine to play with Newcastle because he was he was a top class player and a top class fellow as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you say hit the ground running. It took a few games to get going, didn't it, Paul? With the new the new lineup. Well, it did. Uh, Newcastle opened the season actually at Wembley in the in the Charity Shield, uh, and they faced champions Manchester United of all clubs again. Don't bring that uh, up, Paul. Don't bring it up, Paul. No, we, well, we I've was, got. We were jet lagged. We were jet lagged. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the end of the game, the the Magpies had been outplayed and thrashed four 0 unfortunately, and and yes, probably jet lagged. Uh, unfortunately for the supporters, a thunderstorm at the end of the. The game made everything pretty bad. That hurt after last season's title chase, uh, but it wasn't to last very long, really. Yeah, and I also remember Newcastle losing the opening game of the season two two nil away to Evan. Can you put your finger on the the slow start? Was was it seriously jet lag or a long long pre season? Uh, 
I think it was a, we'd played a lot of games. We'd done Darren Huckabee's test. It was a farewell game for Darren Huckabee, who we'd signed. So we had to go and play a game at Lincoln there. <laughs> then, then we it's, we can use it as excuses, but we'd, we'd been on a, a long trip. We'd been, and we hadn't had a lot of recovery. And it took a little bit of time. The Everton game, obviously, Speedo scored as well, which is quite ironic. So he scored in that game. Everton at the time was a difficult place with Big Duncan up there. But we soon got it together, um, not long after that, with Alan getting his first goal. There was a lot of hype. But, yeah, it, we, we, it wasn't in tune as, as much as we would have done. But we'd not had a lot of time to really prepare on the on the training ground to get things together. But that's an excuse. But it, as I said, as players, we, we, we soon got that together pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, things did pick up. Um, as expected, and there was a nice early opportunity for revenge against Man United at uh, St James's Park, wasn't it, Paul? Uh, yeah, by the time uh, the Red Devils arrived at Gallagher during October, Newcastle were in full flow. You know, the top of the table again, really. Revenge was in the air against Manchester United. Players and supporters wanted that badly, really. Uh, and the Black and Whites turned it on, winning 5-0. Two everlasting goals were included in the show. Janula's curling shot. Uh, into the Gallagher end, and then Philip Albert's exquisite late chip into the Leeser's end. It was just uh, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful game. Yeah, Warren, the five nil, one of the highlights of of this entire era. Um, but it also, now we know it, it represented really the end of of the entertainers' era. Looking back, we can see that. But at the time, I expect as players, you you're so focused and evolved that you you wouldn't have believed that Keegan would be gone ten weeks after that game. No, I, I take you into the changing room just beforehand. Uh, and Kevin was always you know, trying to make it light-hearted and, and make it uh, a loose changing room, if you like, and a little bit of banter here and there. There wasn't really a word said. David was in the zone. You know, he was ready to go. Al was doing his bit. Les, there wasn't a real uh, a rally cry. We just You looked around and you just thought, they're going to get it. They're going to, however it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And it was such a, you know, I didn't start the game, I was involved in the game. But all of us just felt it's time to show, you know, I know Roy Keane and Gary, they're going to all say, well, you never won anything. But we showed them that we'd batter them. And, and, we show, and David Ginola at that time, I've never seen anyone rip Gary Neville apart as much as, and, ne- and probably still never have. Uh, he absolutely murdered him. Um, and David was in the zone to prove everybody how good he was. It was a little bit of a... Uh, a goal we got with Darren's header that was over the line and maybe, you know, with VAR and technology now, but it was clearly two foot over the line. Um, and then we went on and won the game and Alan's famous cross and Les header and, and, and Philip Albert's chip. I just wanted you to realise what was going on beforehand because as a group of players, nothing was really said. We just knew, you know, that it, we had to do something. We had to prove a point. After being humiliated at Wembley, and we was, they was far better than us, losing the season before, we just had to prove to that lot that we, we we could do it. And we didn't just beat them, we humiliated them uh, with the chip. Again, we didn't win anything, we didn't do anything, but we felt bloody good afterwards. Um, yeah. And we let the fans know that it was pretty good afterwards. Um, and that was uh, one of the games in my memory. I played, was lucky enough, over 200 games, I ended up you know, appearing for new. That's one that was stick in my mind. As I said, I wasn't really involved as much as I would have liked, um, but I was involved. And just to, just to be in that changing room beforehand would never leave my memory because it, it it's something that men are made of you know and that's that that was one of them one of them games amazing insight there the steely determination um to beat man united and uh, you got one one over them they 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 did newcastle four and we did them five a couple of months later so good one paul there was some interesting games in europe around this time as well can you talk us through that 
Well, yeah, Newcastle were tipped to go far in the UEFA Cup as well that season, um, uh, but they met Monaco in the latter stages and lost uh, heavily on the Mediterranean coast uh, to a fine side, which included a young Thierry Henry. But included in the European run were, were special goals from Tino Espria and another gem from uh, our friend David Ginola. Uh, many reckon that effort against Manchester United was uh, David's best and it's often repeated on the TV these days. But the one he scored against Ferenc Varus at St James's Park was much better, I reckon. Uh, he controlled a high clearance from the box uh, on his uh, knee, then flicked the ball to one from one foot to another, and then hit a volley right into the top corner. It was simply uh, magnificent. It was uh, you know, out of this world, and, and I can still see that goal in the top corner right now. Yeah. Amazing. Magnifique, as David might say himself. I, I give you a quick story about Terry Henry. You mentioned him. Me and yeah. Steve Watson was playing uh, right back and right midfield. And uh, we played him uh, at home. And Terry had knocked the ball past me. And Watto was... If you get, get Steve Watson on here, because Watto was about 25 yards behind me. And he was he said, I've got him, I've got him. Terry Henry knocked it past me. And he, knocked, he, he caught Watto up. In about 10 strides <laughs> and then crossed it. And then I went to what I, I thought you had him. He went, I didn't realize he was that bloody quick. Well, he said another <laughs> word, but uh, what I said, he went, I've got him, I've got him. And then what I was like, Oh no, I haven't. And then he, he ended up crossing the ball. But uh, what a player he was. And that you said, you, you, the European experience and, and David's goal was, was sensational. And Tino, remember putting his shirt on the pole and, and yeah. putting it around there. There's another great, great memory as well when Tino got a couple of goals as well. Yeah, brilliant. And um, as we approach the new year um, of 1997, things did start to change a little bit. Newcastle went on a, a bit of a bad run, uh, winless in seven as, as we approach Christmas, but not completely out of, of the title race. However, Paul, things behind the scenes weren't as well as we thought, as we'd find out in January. Well, they had slipped in the race, but they did you know, make a bit of a recovery uh, to thrash both Tottenham 7-1 and Leeds mm-hmm. 3-0 as the year turned. But then there was a huge shock uh, for everybody with corporate changes happening in the background. Uh, United heading for a PLC status. Kevin Keegan resigned. United were still in. Were, were definitely still in the title race, and it was a perplexing decision. Uh, yet the roller coaster had taken you know something out of Special K. Anybody who who was with them you know, during that era could see a change from. The, the early 90s through 95 and 96 and 97, you know, the grey hair got greyer without doubt. And, uh, you know, he walked out and uh, Newcastle you know, had something, uh, a, a mighty void to fill. You were with him, Warren. Could, did you sense a change in Kevin yeah. around this time? Yeah, he wasn't as, the skip in his step wasn't as, as bouncy. Um, his demeanour was more complex. He was more thoughtful about what he was saying. Because when he was out on the training field with us, he was like a young boy again. But it, there was a lot going on behind. And arguably, 99% of the players had gone there for the club, but ultimately for Kevin, because Kevin had spoken to all of us and we wanted to be part of that. And then to hear that he, he'd left was was a big shock to us. And I think we all felt that Gaffer just talked to us. You know, they let us, and maybe we can work this out. You know, maybe we can, again, hindsight's a great thing, but he never, he just took it all inside, he took all the responsibility and he left and obviously Terry McDermott and Arthur Cox were still there but it was it was never the same but you're right, there was a, there was a different demeanour about 
KK at the time. And, you know, when the fans would notice it, media would notice it. But he never really felt that he had the club going in the way that he wanted to. He didn't feel like, and it wasn't way, but he had to answer to people now rather than just speaking to Freddie or um, Sir John and then getting to Douglas and whatever it may be. He, he felt that he had to then go for another party who had no concept of what the club and what the people wanted. Um, and that's where we, we just felt it noticeable straight away. Uh, and as a group of players, we were devastated because, as I said, he was a big part of you know my opening line that like I said to you, KK sent me, come and join a big club. I'd already spoke to David Dean, I'd already spoke to other clubs. But when KK says, come and join it, and he has that bounce around him and that enthusiasm and that passion and that love for the game, you know, it's it's infectious. Um, so it was a big, big void to, to, to fill because, as I said, a lot, you know, the players were there for him and we felt that we'd let him down and the club down uh, the season before not winning it. So we felt we had a, you know, an obligation to, to do that. And, you know, to beat someone 7-1, at home and then get the news before the Aston Villa game was obviously, you know, devastating for all of us. And then we all start having, you know, chatting, what's going on, where are we going to go from here? What's the situation? So, um, yeah, it was a very turbulent time for the club. Definitely. Paul, uh, King Kev is gone. Long live King Kenny, wasn't it? Well, it didn't take Newcastle long to get a replacement. Uh, in came another football icon, Kenny Dalglish, great Liverpool, Celtic, Scotland, yeah, and he had just lifted, or uh, not so long ago, lifted the, the Premier League title uh, with Blackburn, with, with Alan Shearer as number nine, of course. But he, uh, you know, eventually imposed a different style on the Magpies. You know, that was really for the following season, uh, but not many around the club, you know, liked what happened. First, though, United continued the season in a similar manner, but lost both Shearer and Ferdinand for, for periods out injured. And they slipped up in the challenge uh, to Manchester United again. Uh, by the end of the campaign, uh, they did have an outside chance of winning the trophy. Uh, but really, nobody thought that it was going to happen. And they ended in runners-up spot for the second time running. Now, that wasn't bad. To finish second to Manchester United two years in a row was pr still pretty good. Yeah, and at least there was a silver lining, Paul, wasn't there, to finishing second that year? There was a big bonus this time round. Uh, Newcastle were in the expanded uh, new money-spinning Champions League. The Magpies had reached the, the top table really now and got into uh, Europe's uh, uh, big league. But as it happened, you know, Daglish was no Kevin Keegan. You know, frustratingly, all the good work over five years uh, was soon ripped apart by the famous Scott, and and you know that was perplexing again. Frustrating for every Newcastle supporter. Why or why was the team just ripped apart? You know, only Kenny will know. Along the way, though, plenty still happened at St James's Park in in that new season. Oh yes, and we'll get into that in in the next episode. Um, Warren, so much happened during this chapter, ninety five to ninety seven. Is it is it fair to say, in listening to you chat about it, is, was this the happiest period of your football career? Uh, yeah, no doubt. But also my time with Sir Bobby Robson um, mm. was wonderful as well. You know, we had the, the time with Kenny Dalglish and I must say as a, as a player, he was magnificent. You know, he would protect his players too much. Uh, and with the media, he felt, you know, dif difficult to, to deal with some of the questions, how he dealt with his style of football. Uh, again, you know, with a lot of games, we went to Highbury and won one nil. that they was obviously a tough team to play. But defensively, he worked on that area again with Alan Irvine as his coach and Terry McDermott has still stayed there, obviously their relationship at Liverpool. 
so Kenny had come in and he, you know, got us to a cup final uh, as well. I mean, that has to be said, you know, against Arsenal uh, as well, although we didn't perform great again, but they, they was a, a phenomenal team at, at the time. Uh, and he got us, you know, second in the, in the league, but it was such a, uh, you know, if there's anyone to come in, Kenny Dalglish took that responsibility because it was such a big shoes to fill and also having to, which is crazy, you have to say now, but like to balance the books, you know, to to get Pistone, to get John Dale Thomason, you had to sell a David Ginola and a Lesford, which seem, doesn't seem logical to do that. Um, but they decided to do it for whatever reason, and we have to be professional. But it was definitely some wonderful, wonderful football. But I've really enjoyed my time with Sir Bobby Robson when he come in, the turnaround. And to leave the club as I did in in o two o three back in the Champions League, back challenging again uh, with the likes of Sir Bobby involved. Because for me, he was the ultimate manager, uh, tactically a gentleman. I know Kevin was great and Kenny Dalglish. Uh, Rude Hullet was Rude Hullet, um, but Sir Bobby for me was ultimately uh, a magnificent gentleman and a, a wonderful ambassador for the game and, and particularly for Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, and that, we're going to cover that in in in, in coming yeah. episodes. We might have to get you back on for those worries. Definitely, uh, I'd love to it? for that because it, 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 that was a special time. But this this was our, you know my my happiest time, and you know I, I loved being around the club. I loved being around the people. Uh, I remember, you know, me and Rob Lee would drop the kids off at school at about eight o'clock in the morning, just throw them off at the carpool, and then we'd be in the training ground early, chatting, speaking to everyone, whether it was you know Derek Wright, the kit man, or Tomo, and all the lads was in there. It was a, just a great great time to be around. Uh, the football club absolutely yeah amazing time to be in the stadium around the city wearing the kit it was it was it was glorious and we hope to one day get a, a taste of that again but um but who knows i think it was a magical period that'll never be repeated if i'm being honest so there we have it a big big episode in the books um we closed the chapter on keegan's first spell as manager of newcastle united the club they kissed the sky didn't they but uh, the wait for that first top flight title since 1927 rolls on it was about 13 episodes ago um really great to have you for for this one warren um next week we're gonna cover newcastle's first foray into the champions league um so listeners keep your ears out for that one next wednesday in the meantime uh, please subscribe to everything is black and white podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on and press the notification bell so you get all our podcasts as soon as they land and please do follow Chronicle Lives Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NEFC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And video versions are available to watch of this series on our YouTube channel. So just search for the EIBW podcast on there. And you can see the fantastic 1995 Adidas Away shirt that I've adorned, especially for this fantastic episode. And uh, last one for me, stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters on Chronicle Live. They're free. And I'll put a link to sign up to those in the show notes. So if you select that, click that, select Sport Newcastle United Updates, enter your email address, you'll be signed up to receive all the best NUFC content from Chronicle Live every day for free. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joannu, and our very special guest, Warren Barton.